Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the letter of Jesus to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been fortunate enough, actually about a year ago, to uh, visit Palestine and to see some of the religious pilgrimage sites in Jerusalem and in other parts of, of uh, Israel and to uh, you know, walk today where Jesus walked. But as equally important uh, theological tourism that could happen would be to go to Asia Minor, to the coast of Turkey, and to experience these ancient cities that Paul and John write to that make up the bulk of the New Testament. If you were to tour the streets of ancient Ephesus, which can be done, and you were to walk in the streets of the modern city of Ephesus, again, which can be done, you would notice very quickly something's missing. Unlike Jerusalem or Tiberias or other parts of Galilee and Israel, you would find that there is no Christian church in Ephesus today. Thriving congregation, the place where Paul spent two years teaching, a place that, that was uh, worthy of both Paul and John writing to and communicating deeply important gospel values, now no longer has a permanent Christian witness. Is that just the... the what-ifs of history coming to bear on a place that they had their season and now it's somebody else's season? Or was there in the Ephesian church a kind of fundamental conflict about what it means to be the church? One that we need to face as a Western, post-modern, post-Christendom 
church. Not just our congregation, but the church as a whole in the West needs to come to terms with that inner conflict that, uh, that John is writing to this church about. The Ephesian church was a church in conflict. It was, it was Dylan High School in Friday Night Lights. <laughs> Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. They knew their theology. These were, these were smart folks. They knew what following Jesus was all about. They had, they had their theology down pat. They, they practiced good deeds. They worked hard. They persevered. They didn't have any tolerance for wickedness around them. And interestingly enough, the word that John uses here, kakos, is the word that we today draw from for the English word cacophony. It's not just naughty people. It's, it's all of that crazy noise all around. This, this was a single-minded, devoted, focused congregation. They were purpose-driven. If there was ever a purpose-driven church, they had it down pat. And more to the point, they were tough. The Ephesian church was a tough church. They endured. They hung in there. They took it on the chin and came back unlike Oklahoma yesterday. I have to, it was a sad, sad day. This was a church that had figured out its boundaries. They knew who was in and who was out and how to get in and how to get out. You would think that John would write them and say, well done, you've got your act together, you've put it all in one piece, you're the model church. Congratulations. John writes this first letter. Jesus dictates this first letter. His first word is to the church in Ephesus. And he says, yeah, you've done all these things, but you've lost your first love. You're, you're indulging in a great adventure in missing the point. You have been so busy focusing on the boundaries. You've been so busy toughing it out. You've been so busy practicing the faith, you forgot to do the faith. You've been so busy getting your theology right and making sure everybody conformed that you forgot how to love. I can think of no more difficult critique to come to a church than you've forgotten how to love. And yet, in the church in the West, it happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, ask any non-church-going American millennial today what they think of the church and immediately out comes a variety of adjectives about how unloving we are. Well, what do we do about that? Because even as 
even as Jesus gives this critique that you've lost your first love, he also pivots and he says, yeah, but you figured it out about these Nicolaitans. Now, folks, we don't have a clue who these Nicolaitans are. They show up here and they show up in the letter to Pergamum. But we don't have a clue who they are. And anybody who tells you they do is guessing, which I will do in a moment. But <laughs> I just wanted to warn you in advance that it, all it is is a guess. Okay? I think it's a pretty good guess, but it's still a guess. Because we don't, we don't know. We have no independent historical record of who these people are that are worthy of mentioning twice in the seven letters in churches that are far apart from each other. So it was apparently quite a broad movement. Dealt with them, Jesus said. And what Jesus goes on to say is, even though you've got a serious problem, repent. Repent and, and, and be victorious. Be, be fulfilled in your calling, in verse 7. He says, there, there will be this tree of life in the paradise of God that will be yours if you will only learn to love again. Not if you keep your theology straight, not if you doctrinally tick all the right boxes, but if you recover the first calling to love. Now, the word that is attributed to Jesus in verse 7 is a derivative of the Greek word Nike, which means victory. So I use the word victorious here. It's also the first, syllabus, first syllable of Nicolaitans. So perhaps, and here goes my somewhat dilettante educated guess, that maybe the Nicolaitans were about Christian victory in life. We have victory over sin by getting our theology right and by bearing down and working hard and enduring and persevering and, and doing all the right things we're supposed to do, regardless of how we feel about that. In AA, they talk about uh, faking it until you make it. That you do something until you get to the point where it is natural where you deal with someone until you can actually relate to them. And maybe that's what the Nicolaitans were all about, that if we do enough good deeds, we'll eventually learn to love people. Only they forgot that part. It's a guess, given the grammatical textual evidence that victory had become the point of the Christian walk instead of love becoming the point of the Christian walk. And Jesus' corrective wasn't, oh, abandon good deeds, abandon hard work, abandon perseverance. No, it was make the main thing the main thing, which is loving others. 
The maintenance of church boundaries had resulted in the loss of love in the congregation. And now it was about, are you good enough to be in this group or not? Are you worthy of being part of us or not? Do you tick all the right boxes or not? Instead of, our doors are always open and welcoming of everyone. And yet we will also proclaim Jesus' good news. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. So what are the characteristics of a victorious church? That, that, that word's been thrown around in holiness circles for generations. A victorious Christian life, a victorious lifestyle, a victorious church. How do we, what are the characteristics of a victorious church? Well, I think first of all, you, you begin at the end of Revelation 2, 1 to 7, and you see the goal of a victorious church not as escape from the world, but as a full participation in the renewing and redeeming of creation, the new heaven and new earth. You, you eat at the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's the goal. The goal is that together we will celebrate in this festive meal of locally grown produce in the city of God. Not, we're going to escape to heaven because we don't want to go to hell or we don't want to stay on earth, which can sometimes be the same thing, I suppose. But we want instead to see a new heaven and a new earth, the renewing of creation happen. And in the renewing of creation, we participate. We're active in that. We Strive with good deeds and hard work to make it happen. And in perseverance and endurance, the day will come when we will celebrate with a fresh fruit salad in the city of God. We see that as the goal. That's, that's our aspiration. That's the horizon. In order to get there, we've figured out, a victorious church figures out a way to work hard at authentic discipleship. We seek to follow Jesus daily in life. That's, that's a different calling than we seek to get our theology in conformity to the manual of doctrine and government, which I'm sure everybody worries about in this congregation. That's, It's not about do we tick all the boxes. It's about do we strive to follow Christ daily in life, knowing that that's an impossible task, knowing that that's a high calling, but also knowing that that's a great privilege and, and, a, and, and a great challenge. And that in that great challenge, we can aspire, can aspire to greatness, that that the act of loving our enemy can be transformative, not just for our enemy, but for us. That, that the opportunity to 
to give ourselves in service to the poor isn't just being nice because we have a little extra, but it changes us fundamentally into the image of Christ because we have seen in the poor the face of Jesus. A victorious church finds ways to work hard at following Jesus daily in life. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, a victorious church has come to realize that the central activity of church is love. And that love isn't just warm, fuzzy feelings for somebody. That love isn't just attraction. That love isn't just emotion. That love is grace and truth in action. That the love that Jesus talks about, the love that he incarnates from John 1, is a love that says, I will offer grace upon grace and I will proclaim God's truth. And I got to tell you, that is a hard road to walk. We want to, we, we want to find, you know, one or the other. We want to give grace. And so we say, well, some of this stuff in the Bible, not so important. Not really important. Or we want to say, you know what, everything in the Bible is important. And if you don't buy into it, well, you know, it's your suntan, okay? You're the one going to hell, not me. And both of those are equally heretical. Both of those are equally not the will of God. There is no choice between grace and truth if we're serious about love. There is only the third way of grace and truth. See, if we were German, we would have invented a word that says grace and truth, you know, as one word. But we speak English, so we've got to break it up. But it's grace and truth held together, held in tension, held in conflict. It's us wrestling with what does that really look like and maybe getting it wrong occasionally, probably getting it wrong occasionally, but never, ever losing sight of that is our calling, to be God's instruments of grace and truth together. Not one or the other. Not one when it feels right and the other when it feels better. But both together. There are any number of illustrations I could use to uh, unpack this. But Jesus doesn't do that in, if he, in Revelation 2, 1 to 7, when he talks to the Ephesian church, he simply says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So I want to leave that with you. Grace and truth held together. How do we do that? How do we pull off grace and truth when the thing that you're saying I've got to do is fundamentally in contradiction with what I believe to be the truth. How do I deal with that inside the congregation, in the community? How do I deal with somebody who I would just as soon string up 
because they do nothing but irritate me when I'm called to show grace instead. How, how do we do that? It's amazingly hard. It requires of us a willingness to suspend our need to be right. Oh, that's hard for me. Because, I mean, even my last name. I mean, I, <laughs> I would rather, I, I mean, I, I gotta be right. If I'm not right, I, you know, what's the, yeah. <laughs> Preach it, brother. And yet, that's where the gospel pushes me, is to suspend the quest to be right on the issue, whether it's by being grace-filled or being truthful. To suspend that and to instead say, you know what, our goal is to all sit together around a wonderful locally grown fruit salad in the paradise of God that is to come. That's our goal. My goal is not to win the argument. God, it's hard. Because I like winning arguments. Almost as much as I like it when OU wins football games, which they didn't. So, grace and truth in action means we love, we suspend our need to be right and instead adopt the stance of a listener, a disciple, someone with the goal of the paradise of God in mind. Not an escape from this world, but a renewing, a transforming of all of creation. Because we've given up the need to be right and we found instead grace and truth. The Roman Empire built its power on deception and coercion. Christ followers are empowered by relationships formed and shaped in love. Grace and truth in action. And so this morning, some questions for us to think about. When have you felt you've worked hard for God's kingdom purposes and wasn't fully appreciated by God's people? When have you, when have you worked hard for God's purposes only to go, hmm, wasn't that, isn't that special? Isn't that a nice thing that you did? Where do you feel you've compromised, you've needed to compromise, either grace for truth or compromise truth for grace? Where have you felt those tearing at you. How hard is it to love someone with whom you fundamentally disagree? And as a corollary to that, how hard is it to make someone part of your community when you live in fundamental disagreement with them about an issue? One more thing. Actually, two more things. 
N.T. Wright, in his book Revelation for Everyone, writes, love in the early Christian sense is something you do, giving hospitality and practical help to those in need, particularly to other Christians who are poor, sick, or hungry. That was the chief mark of the church. No other non-ethnic group had ever behaved like this. Love of this kind, reflecting, they would have said, God's own self-giving love for them was both the best expression of and best advertisement for faith in God. We want to do evangelism. We want to grow as a church. Forget the church growth strategies. Forget getting your theology right. Just start loving people. Loving people by holding grace and truth together. By living in that tension, which I got to tell you is a lot harder than we think. Because truth will push our grace boundaries and grace will push our truth boundaries and we will want to land on one side or the other. And the gospel calls us not to do that. That the transformed paradise of God is a place where grace and truth have come together. Chorus to the old song. We are one in the spirit and they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. I'm telling you, there's a world out there who doesn't know Jesus or who has given up on Jesus because we've been too busy fighting political, theological, social battles. And we haven't been loving people by doing the hard work of holding grace and truth together in tension and living with that tension because we don't like tension. I mean, after all, we're good, we're good middle-class American Christians. We don't want any tension. We, can't we all just get along? Can't grace and truth get along? No, grace and truth sometimes stand fundamentally in opposition to each other. And yet the call of the gospel is live in that tension. Live with that tension. That's what we'll be known for. That's what we'll be appreciated for. That's what will engender curiosity and respect and people turning to faith in Christ. Because they have seen us hold grace and truth together and act it out in love. The law in the Old Testament, the Torah, instruction is no more truth than the driving manual you get to pass a driving test is the vehicle code or how you drive. May God grant to us a struggle worthy of our souls, a struggle of bringing grace and truth together in action and have it resonate in love, love for our friends, love for our enemies, love for those worthy of love, love for those unworthy of love. Thanks be to God 
for the Ephesian church and its struggles. May we, may we grow through their struggle to become more like Christ.